You know how it is. Keeping up with things is like a game of memory or some kind of puzzle that we're trying to solve. We see a thing and we catalog it. We put it on a shelf in our minds. And then later on, when we see something related, we put that on the same shelf until eventually we've got a collection going. What am I talking about? Okay, so a few years ago, I saw this video of an early iteration of the band Scary Pockets. Today, Scary Pockets is out there killing it. They've made so many videos that have gone viral. They're touring the world. But back when this video that I'm talking about was made, it was a pretty new project. Anyway, it was a version of the Radiohead song Creep, done as a funk tune. You were here before. And they were set up in a studio that caught my attention. It looked like some kind of classic room, like maybe from Memphis or something. But I had never seen this place before. So I just put that on the shelf, you know. And then not long after that, I saw another video from another favorite band of mine who I've talked to for this podcast on multiple occasions. That's Wolfpack. And they were in that same studio recording with the great drummer James Gadson and the guitarist David T. Walker. I paid a little more attention. Where was this? I looked it up. Lucy's Meat Market in L.A. Huh, okay. So I started looking out for Lucy's Meat Market. Like when I interviewed Curtis Stigers, I noticed that the record that we were talking about had been recorded there. Joey Dosick makes his records there. Lionel Lueke and Gretchen Parlato's duo record from last year. That was made at Lucy's Meat Market. And they all have kind of a feeling about them. Like the room is kind of collaborating with the music and the musicians. Oh, yeah. And then there's this. Larry Goldings with Kave Rastigar and, and Abe Rounds. Man, let's just settle here for a second and listen to this. This was also made at Lucy's Meat Market, and all of these records were engineered by Pete Min who sometimes mixes or produces also, but whatever is happening at Lucy's is kind of magical to me, and Pete Min is the guy behind Lucy's. Pete Min was actually a name I knew from another part of my life, from another shelf. That's the one that's devoted to making music for commercials. By the way, welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. Pete Min and I actually had worked for the same music company. It's a music house, that's what they call it one that hires someone like me to write music for commercials. So I was aware of Pete as a commercial music composer. But here he was, reformed, reborn, reinvented as the guy from Lucy's Meat Market, working on essentially a lot of jazz-adjacent hipster projects. A lot of my favorite stuff from L.A. seemed to be coming out of Pete's studio. Then I noticed that Pete Min had also started a label called Colorfield Records, and he was making extremely unusual Art records with interesting artists like Larry Goldings, Abe Rounds, Anthony Wilson, Mark Juliana, Brad Allen Williams, the guitar player and producer, and a bunch of people I hadn't heard of, like, for example, this Benny Bach record. But the Colorfield records were really something. They sound incredible, and the music is experimental, while also often very accessible. So I decided that when I was in L.A. earlier this year that I would go meet Pete Min at Lucy's Meat Market and then take the short drive down the road to talk to Brad Allen Williams about the Colorfield record that he made with Pete and also about other things. And what you hear behind me right now is a track from Brad's Colorfield record. And what we have here today is the first of those two talks, the one with Pete Min at Lucy's Meat Market. Later this week, I'll give you the second conversation that I recorded that day with Brad Allen Williams. And just to paint the picture... On my way to talk to Pete Min at Lucy's Meat Market, I somehow managed to spill an entire full to-go cup of oat milk latte on myself in the rental car because, of course, my L.A. driving chops are down with the coffee and the multitasking, and I just, I just got myself covered in coffee. So when I walked into the studio, I was cleaning myself up, and as I did, I explained to Pete Min that we have a mutual friend, actually a few, in New York. So at the beginning of our conversation, when he makes reference to Pete Nichelle, that's one of our mutual friends. But then what follows is really a very engaging conversation about approach, philosophy to making records, some technical things also, maybe more than a few technical things, microphones, synthesizers, setups. And there's also, uh, as usual, a general personal overview of a life spent devoted to creating music. Third-Story.com is the place to sign up, subscribe, visit the entire archive, which of course includes past episodes like those with Wolfpack, Scary Pockets, Larry Goldings, Curtis Steigers, also Ben Wendell and Nate Wood from Kneebody, who have also recorded at the Meat Market, 
Adam Levy, the guitar player, Jake Sherman, they've also both worked there. I'm sure there are more. You can find that all in the archive, third-story.com. Support us at patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast. And remember that we are made in collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. Here's me and Pete Min talking it down at Lucy's Meat Market earlier this year. I first heard your name probably in what feels like another lifetime ago for you in New York in the in the kind of production music context. Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't mind, like, where did you come from? What's the story? I guess started playing guitar when I was young, was into all the classic stuff. Where'd you uh, grow up? From fifth grade on in Jersey where Pete and Michelle lives. Oh, really? I went to school up in Ithaca, not for yeah. music. And then, because my parents wanted me to go to Real school. Real school, get a diploma, and then you could do whatever you want. Right. And so I moved down to New York. So what'd you get a diploma in? Sociology. Uh, awesome. <laughs> it served me well Yeah. throughout the years. Are you being facetious? I'm being facetious. But there is yeah. something about, I mean, I think being a record producer is, in a weird way, has a, an aspect of sociology about To it. a degree. I mean, it's made me more compassionate, definitely, about politics and people's situations yeah. and stuff like that, but... No, I knew what I, I wanted to move to New York and do yeah. music and be in a rock band and, you know, Led Zeppelin or U2 or whatever it was. Right. And, and unfortunately, that didn't pan out. So, you know, at a certain point, and I played in bands, I toured a bit. And then at a certain point, was doing the grind, yeah. you know, did, had, did temp work, yeah. did day jobs, you yeah. know, all that stuff. I just wasn't, like, as a guitar player, good enough to just be right out the gate, like, I'm just making a living playing guitar in right. New York and paying Session my rent. Guy. Yeah, I'm just not good enough for that. So I did that stuff, and then Pete had started Duotone. Yeah. And then at a certain point, I was tired of being poor, yeah. and I called him up and I said, hey, can I, you know, start writing for you? Yeah. The first thing I did, I won. Yeah. And then during that time, probably maybe I did it for 10 years, yeah. maybe a little more than that, maybe a little more. And during that time, like the work was crazy. Like, yeah. you know, I was doing at least one or two demos a day. Yeah. Like and is this every what, like day. 97, 98? Like late 90s yeah. started and then through 2000. Yeah. Through the 2000s. And, you know, it was just the, and it was union work yeah. and, you know, you made, pretty good money yeah and then and i was always playing in bands yeah. like i always always played in bands and yeah. always wrote with people and stuff like that so i kept that dream alive duncan <laughs> chic was in this space too right were you working with duncan then i did a gig with him yeah. and i think i played on a record of yeah. his or something like that so i did a lot of tv stuff i and and at the time i and in around 2000 i also started a studio in greenpoint because uh. i always collected gear yeah. Like I was just the guy in the band who always poured a studio, Tascam, D88s, you know, just the whole thing. I went through that whole thing and always collected gear, was always trying to, like I was always interested in sound, yeah. like the, the sound of guitar. I always bought tons of amps and yeah. guitar, just trying to figure out why what, things sounded the way they sounded. Yeah. And so at a certain point, like by 2000, I had enough gear, and so I started a studio out in Greenpoint. Right. And continued to do stuff with Pete, but also started to, like, produce bands, right. do stuff with indie bands in New York. And then around 2006, around 2000, I kind of, because I had been in New York for 15 years at that point. Yeah. And at that point, I was kind of, and that was, like, Giuliani, like, in 95, and I was like, New York sucks. Yeah. Lost the edge. It just, yeah, it was just so different than from when I moved it, from when I moved there. Yeah. So around 2005, a friend of mine, you know, he would always come out to New York and because he was from New York, but he lived in L.A. And he, every single time he'd be like, you know, you should move to L.A. And I would, you know, how New Yorkers are about L.A. Like, yeah, right. And one day I thought I'm moving out. And it was after 20 years that I had been in New York. So since you moved out here. There has been, I think, a real opening of L.A. creatively, it seems like to me. Oh, man. In the last five, six years, yeah. seven years. But, you, but you're talking about way before that. You're talking about like the original, original New York-L.A. dichotomy of it's like art on the East Coast and commerce on the West Coast. A hundred percent. And when I moved out here... It was culture shock for me because I had spent so much time on the East Coast and yeah. I just ne spent no time out here. So yeah. 
just as far as the culture, it was very different, and it took me a while to get used to it, and also realized that if you move out here, you just can't compare the two. Right. Like, if you if you keep on thinking, like, oh, this sucks compared to New York, yeah. you're just never going to survive, because yeah. it's just, they're two totally different places. Yeah. So, anyways, I moved out here in 2006. It was very different than what it is now. Yeah. So it took a while. And also L.A., what I've realized is that L.A. is a very, it just, you have to just be here. Yeah. And just exist. Yeah. And do good work. And then eventually stuff happens. Yeah. Like I know people sometimes come out here and they try to do that New York, you know, like. Yeah. Kind of aggressive. And that it just doesn't work out here. Yeah. And I tell people from New York, I'm like, hey, I was in your position. Like, you just got to let it happen. Yeah. Like, it'll happen. Some people I see shoot up the ladder really quickly, but they're exceedingly talented people who huh. just, they walk in the room, they're so good, you're just like, oh, yeah, that you, person. Right. Yeah. Few and far between. Like, two people I've seen that happen with. Unless you're... Exceptional. Yeah, exceptional. Yeah. You just have to grind it out. Yeah. You just have to kind of exist yeah and just do good work and then eventually it'll happen it's not it's just, and it's also just way more spread out so it's not as concentrated and the networking thing is harder than too right you can't yeah like, you're just not it's just you know when i moved out here it's like hey where do you go yeah. just for social yeah just for drinking yeah oh there's footsies there's this yeah. place it was literally like four or five places i was like you know coming from new york yeah. you're like what yeah like, where where <laughs> like that's it but you had started to allude when we were chatting earlier about that thing where when you're in a place long enough, people start to see you in a certain way. They see you as the guy that does this. And when you moved out here, it seems like you were able to kind of reinvent yourself. You can reinvent. Yeah, yeah. because I didn't know a lot of people out here, so yeah. no one knew what my background was. Yeah. So in New York, like I was kind of known as a guitar player, even yeah. though like I'm not a great guitar player. But yeah. like I toured and I played in bands and like, you know, so... When I moved out here, I was like, fuck that. Like, yeah. I want to be producer, yeah. engineer kind of person. Cause, just because that's kind of what I enjoyed. And I just, I knew that's my calling. That's just my interest. And, you know, I also saw lots of great guitar players. And I'm like, Not man, I, yeah, like I got to practice a lot more. Or I just keep on doing what I'm doing. And that's right. what I enjoy. And I so like what did you records. do? So what did you do when you got out So here? when I moved out here, I was still working for Pete. So yeah. I could still make money. Doing commercial stuff. Doing commercial stuff, yeah. but I set up a studio and I just started recording people. Yeah. Was and it this where we are now? No, I was in a house in Eagle Rock. Yeah. When I first moved out here, like I would go into Hollywood and people would be like, oh, where do you live? Yeah. Eagle Rock, where's that? Yeah. Like I felt like it was just a different world out here, yeah. 2006. And so I lived in a house. I set up all my gear. When I first moved out here, I didn't know a lot of people and I fell in with a couple of people, this one band called Airborne Toxic Event, mm -hmm. and I did their first record, and it like kind of took off and did stuff. And you want to run away, run away, just get on the fucking train and leave today, and it doesn't matter where you spend the night, you just might end up somewhere in a fight, in a fight, on the car, in your room, on a concrete shelf, fighting all alone with yourself, with yourself, and you just want to feel like a coin that's been tossed in a It didn't really do anything for me, really. I mean, people, some people, I got a little bit of work. Yeah. But I just set up shop and just started recording people and kept on doing the commercial stuff. Yeah. But eventually, and then in 2009, I bought a place in Studio City. I made a bigger studio. Yeah. Got more work. I started working with Michelle and Dagicello. A fair amount because when I moved out here, a friend of mine introduced me to Chris Bruce, who's uh -huh. a guitar player in her band, who has since moved to New York. She's in New York. She's in New yeah. York, yeah. So 
but so I did three records with her and yeah. through that kind of I got some work out of that right just because she's so great and yeah. people know her and respect her and also when I moved out here like I had a friend who was kind of hooked in with a certain group of musicians and it was fortuitous because it was the people who I would want to be aligned so with. what kind what what's uh, like Chris Bruce yeah. um this guy Cave it's just yeah. it's session people yeah. but session people who were doing interesting records yeah. not like the Hollywood it wasn't Hollywood yeah like session people who like out here the music scene is small yeah but it's disparate I mean yeah. there's definitely different crews of people yeah and I know kind of more of the East Side, and then there's like kind of the Hollywood people yeah. who play on, you know, who tour with all those big bands. Who I don't know very many of those people. Yeah, sometimes they come in for a session. And yeah, every once in a while, like this one guy Tim came in for a Guitar Center shoot because yeah. I rent out my place for shoot sometimes. Because you have a classic looking live room. It's you just have a, a they big like yeah, it, it has windows, yeah. and so people like that. So this one guy Tim came in. He plays with Lady Gaga. I'd never met him before. So L.A. has that thing where it's like there's different groups of people, but in certain, like on the east side, it's smaller. You just know who the people are. And, and, and because I own a studio, you know, people come in and out right. of the place. So. Do you think that the visual aspect of the studio has helped it grow in the sort of internet age and the YouTube age? A hundred percent. Yeah. It looks good. It films beautifully. Well, yeah, mostly when people walk in, they're just like, oh, my God, it feels so good. Because, yeah. you know, you walk into most studios and there's no light. Yeah. So it's just you're in a cave. And yeah. I care about aesthetics. Yeah. I knew that I was going to be in here every single day. I like mid-century stuff. Yep. I like lamps. So, <laughs> yep. so I'm just like an aesthetically driven person. Yep. So I wanted it to feel comfortable for me. And I realized that it definitely affects how yeah. people feel I'm opening up a B room and it's going to be the same kind of thing. Yeah. Like I, I kind of understand what people like. Yeah. I mean, I see, I don't, I just think in the, in the past, like studio people aren't the most aesthetically driven people, you know, they just, they do it a certain way. Yeah. And I see a trend right now happening, even with small studios that, you know, people are setting their studios up a certain way. They're, treating their rooms a certain way and it has a certain look yeah that i personally don't like hmm. but you know it works and yeah. that's why people are doing it you know when we were talking you showed me the live room and you were saying oh usually the people choose this one particular kit because it's got the sort of more uh fleetwood mac dead la west coast sound and it, it made me think like because I recognize a kind of sound that's coming out of this room although it's, i've heard a lot of different kinds of work but i think there are so certain things how much do you think you're responding to what people want, and how much do you think people are responding to what you're doing, if that makes any sense? Um, like, do you see that there's people come in, they want a certain thing, and you go, okay, I see that there's a tendency to want to hear drums in a certain way right now. Well, there's definitely, I mean, you're, we're in L.A., and yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if it's the same in New York, yeah. but, I mean, dead drums are yeah. very in vogue, Yeah, you know. I mean, a lot of people know how to do yeah. it. It's not that hard to do. Yeah. It's just I have, like, the way I set up my studio is that it's not a, it's not like Capitol where it's, you walk in and it's like, okay, set up. There's yeah. no gear. You know, there's no instruments. I have everything set up. So when people walk in within 15 minutes, we can be cutting. Yeah. But it's not fun for other engineers. Do you have other engineers who work here sometimes? Not yet. I'm going to start doing that when I open up my B room. Yeah. Because the thing is, is if I rent out my room and there's other engineers, I get kicked out of my room. Yeah. Because I started my label. Yeah. That's kind of my main focus. And if I have a B room, I can rent out this room. Yeah. And go into my B room to and still make work records. On your label stuff. Yeah, and still make records. So I really believe strongly in this mentality of having mics up and gear ready to roll. That's how I like to work too. And I'm always surprised when I go to sessions where it's a clean slate and you're starting from scratch every time. I, I guess I understand it because it gives you, you a lot of choices. Yeah, I think if you're a producer who, producer engineer, yeah. and you want to control kind of the sound yeah. thing, I understand that. Because when people come in, they're like, hey, we, you know, like I did, I did it once where somebody came in, they sent me a mic list yeah. and a mic pre-list and a compressor. And it just wasn't for me. 
It just was not, I had to pull my patch bay. Yeah. It took me like, you know, a day to set it back up. Yeah. And, you know, I heard his stuff and did it sound better than what was set up? Not really. It was yeah. different, but, you know, did yeah. it matter? Like, it mattered to him, you know what I mean? But I just don't want to, that's not my, you can go to Sunset, you can go to a lot of other studios yeah. who, who will accommodate that. So. Yeah. For me, it's just uh, it's for producers and bands who want to get a lot of stuff done in short amount of time. That's what this is. That's what this yeah. is. Yeah, I have a ton of instruments, so and that's you know so that's my dog and pony show. There's kind of a a jazz adjacent thing that ended up happening here for too. sure. I think it Michelle. Yeah, I think that kind of because I'm not a jazzer really. Well, I, mean, I can I, hear that in your background. There's none of that in the story that you're telling. No, and I. I used to listen to a lot of it. I used to go to New York when I was a yeah. kid because I lived in Jersey. So yeah. I would just come in, go into New York and go see the Gil Evans band. Yeah. And, you know, I saw, man, I saw amazing, amazing stuff, but I just wasn't disciplined enough to like learn how to play over changes. Yeah. Like that just confused my, I'm just not smart enough to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I appreciate it. But I think through Michelle's thing, yeah. that like, that whole jazz adjacent thing yeah. started to come into my place. And so I get some stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, you have just the last year, Mark Juliana has been in here and Billy Mahler made a couple records here yeah, and a lot of people. And, yeah. And, you know, but when I look at it, it's like Lionel Lueke was here working with, with Gretchen. Gretchen. Yeah. yeah. She did a record. here. That's a lot of big jazz names that we're talking about. It's I think they like the studio. Yeah. I think if I had another ISO room, for the grand piano, yeah. I would get even more work. Yeah. Because, you know, with jazz, you just need tons of ISO. Yeah. You know, so I have limited amounts of ISO. For yeah. certain bands, it works. For yeah. certain other bands, it doesn't work. Yeah. But I do like doing it because it's, you know, in a day or two days, you do a whole record. Yeah. You know, Billy's records yeah. were done in one day each. Yeah. Like, I did two records with him, and, you know, he's got a cracking band. Yeah. Nate Wood yeah. plays drums. and yeah. You know, so it's just... They're so good. And so those are fun records because you don't get bored. You know, it's not yeah. like, okay, guitar players may doing overdubs. Right. You know, let's sit there for like, you know, two hours while he, you know, yeah. which I get, you know, but it's more, kind of more fun doing those records. What does it mean to you to start a label in, in an environment when the business of making records is like, first of all, so independently minded at anybody? Like, what does it even mean to have a label to you? The label came out of COVID because during COVID, you know, everything shut down. Yeah. And I had a studio sitting here and I have friends. And so I would call up my friends and just be like, hey, come over. Yeah. And let's just do music for fun. Yeah. Like just because everything was so shut down. Right. So kind of early on, and I know it would, it's not copacetic to say it, but like you, I- You bubbled had, up in here. Yeah, I yeah. had friends come yeah. over and we would just like make music and make music in just on the spot. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people do. Yeah. And it was so fun. And one day I was here with my friend Eric Skirmerhorn, mm -hmm. who kind of was one of the people who got me out here. Yeah. And somehow, you know, because I know a lot of people, like the people, my reach out here is pretty wide yeah. as far as players. And there's tons of great players who don't have deals. Yeah. Um, and I have a studio and I thought, I'm going to start a label. Yeah. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. You know, I just was like, fuck it, I'm going to start a label and yeah. see what happens. And so I have... I thought about how to structure it, you know, to make it fair for people. Yeah. And then, so the first one I did was with my friend Abe Browns, yeah. who's a drummer who in plays Michelle's band. in Michelle's yeah. band, plays with Pino. He yeah. plays in Pino's band, oh, yeah. does a lot of stuff with Blake. He's one of the kids yeah. who, like, came here and yeah. went up the ladder very, very quickly. Yeah. And it's got the project with Jake Sherman, too. With Jake and, and Jake Sherman. Yeah. And Abe, yeah. Jake and Abe. Yeah. Exactly. So I did a record with him. He was the first person.
and then I did a record. My second record was with Larry Golding. Yeah. And the thing is, is like in the beginning, my label was not totally like I knew what I wanted to do, but not it wasn't totally sussed out. And, you know, within five or six records, I figured out how to do them. And and basically the premise of the records is that people come in, no music. We're going to do everything here. And I kind of want to get people to get on instruments that they're not normally on or put them in just try to make music in a way that's not where they can't rely on their bag of tricks it's it's such an interesting conceit to take somebody who is really established doing a thing and ask them to do something else I think musicians are interested in doing other stuff. I think that sometimes they just, it takes maybe somebody else to be like, hey, let's do a synth record instead of doing your organ record, you know, with your trio, which is amazing. I mean, it's it's incredible like that. And, you know, his trio is 30 years old and it's really a band. Yes. But I also think that like he understands synths and even if he doesn't, like I'll get him on you know, a bukla or yeah. whatever, a modular, some sort of modular. And I think that if somebody's creative, they're going to be creative on that as well. For sure. Right? Like, if you're creative, you're creative. And the, th- the other thing is, is like, when people are finding that stuff, like if you're sitting in front of something that you're, and all of a sudden you find something, like I'm recording everything, that's the stuff I want. And we build off of that stuff. And how did that process, like you had been producing records for other people in a different context before that. When you sort of cracked this code, how did you see what you were doing shift? Did it shift? Do you see a difference between when you're producing some with somebody for your label versus if somebody comes in and you're producing on a... Yeah, mostly I'm an engineer. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I get yeah. called to produce stuff, yeah. but like mostly I engineer stuff and or mix stuff. Yeah. And producing is a thankless job. Yeah. Like, man, it's it's not it's fun, but at the end of it, like if it becomes successful, yeah. it cannot be fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's not like thank you for you know, it's like I did this. Yes. And you know, it's just the way it is. Like I understand it's human nature, but <laughs> at the same time, you know, it's just a it's pretty thankless job. So what I realize I mean, also like I'm older. Like, I have a limited amount of years left on this planet, mm. and I want to do what I want to do. Yeah. And when I moved out here, I tried to get into that pop thing because my friend had a publishing deal. Yeah. We started kind of a production company, had writers come in, you know, and it's a that's the way it is out here. Like yes. That's, that's a lot of the work out here is yeah. producers, they get together with top line people or artists, they write songs, artists come in, they write, you know, a hundred songs for their record. You know, it's, it's, I'm just not good at that. Like, cause I'm not, it's not in my heart to be doing that. And what I, and that I realized that, and I realized like, I like doing art music. Yeah. I have a concept. I have the instruments and you know, like to get people to want to come in, you know, I have EMS. I just have tons and tons of things that are interesting. And so I know what I want to do now because I'm older yeah, and like I've done a lot of stuff that I wasn't good at yeah. and I realized like, oh, I'm not good at that because my heart's not in it. Yeah. Because the people who are successful at doing the pop stuff are real pop people. Like they're people who really love it and I just am not that person. So I'm going the art world way and, and, and conceptually people can make records, you know, because like as a, I probably am 10 records in. Wow. And 10 records out. And then I have another 10 that I'm doing. So hmm. I realize how like different people, because of the way Label. I make records, yeah. it's very different for a lot of people. Like people usually go in and they're like, I want to make an 80s song. Yeah. And then they make an 80s song. Whereas it's like, we don't know what we're going to make. 
you're just going to start making noise and then it's going to tell us where we're going to go. Yeah. And so for a lot of people, it's uncomfortable and some people get it right away and the process is super easy and some people don't and then the process becomes kind of difficult. Confronting, it sounds like, in a way. They it's a control to, thing. Yeah. Cause it's, because you got to kind of let go of control. Yeah. And I think a lot, and somebody explained to me how, like, people who are kind of virtuosic on their instruments spend their whole life controlling, controlling, trying to control, trying to control. But my feeling is that, like, it's true, but, like, no matter how much you know, it's limited. Any one person can only know so much. Yes. So if you want to access the stuff that's beyond that yeah. part of you, you got to let go. It almost sounds like when I've talked to music therapists about what they do, they'll often put, I'm probably going to get letters from music therapists saying this is not at all what they do, but put somebody in a room with a bunch of different resources and let them try to express themselves with zero understanding of how the instrument actually works. You know? right. And the process of dealing with yourself in the face of that new thing something comes out, you know, and it's what you're describing is not that dissimilar. It's not because I realize that people's personalities come out in the process. Yeah. In a very big way. Yeah. People who have a hard time letting go of control. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down to because they spent all this time like, and they're like, okay, I'm going to make a solo record and I'm going to do everything. Yeah. And it's like, first of all, I don't like if it's all coming from that person, then they can make their record on their own. Yeah. I want to introduce something that exists outside their brain so they can incorporate that later. And are you playing on these records? No. So where is your intervention showing? I mean, I understand that part of it is you're putting the in the room with the gear. The computer. So let's say I put somebody on a 2600. I'm yeah. like, and I kind of show them like, How okay, this is an oscillator. Yeah. This is blah, blah, blah. You can set it up this way. Yeah. You know, blah, blah, blah. Go crazy. I hit record. They're doing stuff. If I start hearing stuff that I can, where I'm like, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. Then I'm like, okay, cool. Let me sit here. I cut up stuff. And then I'm like, okay, let's play play to that. I see. And the thing is, is what I realize is that like, because it's all instrumental music. I mean, some people have vocals on it, which is fine. Yeah. But mostly it's instrumental music. And what I realize is that for instrumental music, like I don't care about ABA. Yeah. Form is is different. It's experimental music. Yeah. Yeah, So I'm kind of like more like, okay, sit at the piano and play for three, three or four minutes. Just play. You make like you take that and then you take little sections. Yeah. And then you make them into sections. Yes. Because a lot of people come in and they play parts yeah right because that's what everybody's like play parts be tasteful and so if you play parts that are linear yeah then in order for you to have interest you got to put something on top of it like you got to put a melody or something yeah yeah so i'm like fuck that like have everything that you do do this flow evolve evolve through compose and then you put less stuff on it And it's interesting, too, because it, it does speak to this thing that I, I've thought about a lot where in, improvisation and composition are very tied to one another. Like, totally. You know, as a as a recovering composer yourself, you know that you just have to sit down and start writing something. Yeah. And that moment of act of creation is an improvisation. Totally. And then you refine it and you edit it and you become tasteful but that initial impulse is improvised and so it seems like part of what you're doing is kind of playing with the space between what's improvised and what's intentional or what's edited i want what's in the subconscious yeah i don't want it i don't want it ironed out yeah you can iron it out on your own but the records do get ironed out i mean for example brad allen williams record is then dressed up with all these string arrangements and i'm a pop guy yeah so i like I like the avant-garde, but yeah. I'm also a real, po- and I like songs. Yeah. 
So I like to take that yeah. and to make that palatable for people to listen to. Yeah. So yes, there is, it's not like, oh, just play anything yeah. and then that's what it is. Yeah. It's like, it's sculpted, yeah. but it's sculpted chaos. Yeah. So, but but the thing is, is that like when people are doing it and it's just coming out, yeah. like that's the stuff that I'm more interested in. It almost sounds like you're also giving listeners a way to engage with the avant-garde that's not so scary or unfamiliar in terms yeah, of the like, sounds. I mean, I was in New York during yeah. the 80s and 90s yeah. and like, you know, there were certain days when I would, you know, go see John Zorn and literally it was completely out. Yeah. Just noise. Yeah. And it's like, I get tired of that personally. Like, yeah. it's just too challenging for my brain. But I think there's a way to bring some of that avant-garde. And a lot of it also, to me, has to do with sound. Totally. So if you have sonically something that sounds amazing, yeah. even if it's weird... People can deal with it. Pe- people can deal with it. Yeah. So that's the other thing is, like, it's sonics, controlled, and kind of chaos at the same time. But so if sound is a big part of what's going on, let's talk about the sound a little bit and like your approach. So another thing that I like to do is I'll take, I'll, like yesterday I had a friend over, we're doing a record and yeah. he's amazing because yeah. he totally, he's 30, yeah. he totally got it. Like yeah. he, it's very easy to make a record with him. Do you think that, but you know, you by saying he's 30, are we saying that there's the younger generation understands this approach differently? I think it's just personality yeah. type. Yeah. I think it's just some people are just more open to having chaos be part of it and be comfortable with it. And some people are like, they really want to control everything. Yeah. So anyways, I had him, I'm like, so we did a piece and, and I started on him on drums. He's yeah. a guitar player. Yeah. So I have that crazy kooky kit set up. Yeah. And I just said, ah, just play for a little bit. Yeah. So usually I'll take it his performance and flip it onto my tape deck and then go down an octave. So then all of a sudden, it's a completely different performance. That's one of your techniques is to do Oh, that? I use my tape deck constantly. And drop it an octave. Or up an octave. Either way. Because I don't want people to think they know what they're... And how do you do it? You, re- you record it 15 and drop it to 7.5? Yeah, or whatever. What, or whatever. Or go down two octaves, depending right. on how much they're playing. Right. If they don't play a lot, then I'll only go down an octave. But if if they're playing a lot, then I'll go down two octaves. Right. It just puts it in a... Compl- you're just like, oh my God, it sounds incredible. Right. And just sonically, it just puts you in a completely different environment. Yes. So I want... I don't want people to think they know what they're doing. <laughs> right. You know, because like once you do that, all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, it's completely different than what I thought I was doing. Do you want to know what you're doing or think that you no. know what you're doing? No. No. I don't care. Yeah. The thing is, is that like, out of all the pieces of music, so maybe I have 20 pieces of music, maybe there's 10 pieces that we haven't used of all the rec- on right. all the records. Like, I know that no matter what we do, like, if we just, if you just have faith and you just go, it'll get us there. Yeah. If people are open, it'll just get us there. Yeah. And I, you ha- kind of have to have faith. I mean, you got to have faith in me that I'll just direct it in a way that'll get us to that point. Yes. But it's rare that we don't get to a point. And the thing is, is that like, you know, when people write music and they're like, we're going to write a hit, you never write a hit. Of course. Right? I mean, it's just got to happen when it happens. How long are these records taking to make? So the way it works is like each sketch usually takes about a day. Yeah. Like, and my days are 12 to 6. Right. So six hours. Yeah. So we get a sketch. So that's 10 days right, to get 10 pieces yep. that, like, fit on a record. Yep. And then there's another five or six days to kind of just complete them, to go back and then... Con- and when we go back, sometimes they completely change. Yeah. Like, because they'll be like, oh, this suction sucks. Okay, just pull everything out, mm-hmm. literally everything out, and just start again, just <laughs> for the one section. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, oh, yeah, I didn't really like that one, but now it's my favorite. Right. A lot of times that happens. So Click track? Grid? All, everything grid everything clicked most everything grid because i quantize uh-huh. because people aren't drummers right and the thing about quantization is that like i'm like telling everybody how i'm making my records hmm. so the thing about quantization is that i like 
like electronic music. Yeah. But the problem to me with electronic music a lot of times is like if you have a hi-hat and it's just going, and it's the same thing over and over and over, the shit gets super linear. Yeah. So for me, it's like if you're playing something. It's got variety of dynamics. It's got velocity changes and timbral changes depending on how you hit it. But if you quantize it, it has that real groove thing, which... Who doesn't like that? And you're doing it elastic audio? Yeah, just elastic audio. Just And it's fast. Everything yeah. is very fast. Yeah. I don't want to think about anything. Like, I can sit in front of the computer and just make decisions. Yeah. I don't care. I just do it. And whatever the t- decisions I make, yeah. that's what they are. If I rarely go back. You move forward. You don't I, second guess. I never go back to other takes. But that's, how, that's where you're taking your contribution and applying the values that you're asking these other people to apply which is like first thought best thought do it and move on 100 percent. do you how do you think this is so geeky but like so if you're building tracks off of an arpeggiated thing coming off of a synth then you later on find what the tempo was and and i'll do it immediately Uh uh-huh I'll do it immediately. Sometimes if people are do like I'll have the bukla. Yeah. Right. So the bukla is like, first of all, there's no pitch. Yeah. There's no time. Yeah. So so it's like, okay, they'll do something. And if it's a time thing, I'll go in and I'll try to get it close. Yeah. And then I'll hit quantize. And sometimes it quantizes yeah. right and sometimes it doesn't. And I don't care. Because like, it's still subdividing in an interesting yeah, way. And, yeah, exactly. It's not like we're trying to get it yeah, into whatever. We're just yeah. Just hit quantize, see what happens. And usually I'm like, yeah, it sounds great. If I have to move stuff, yeah. I'll move stuff. Yeah. But like, so it's very fast. It's very not like, let's not think about it too much. Just as long as there's like a little hook or whatever it yeah. is that we can work with, that's what matters. Yeah. So, and then there's the tuning thing, which the bukla is like, I don't know, is yeah. it a little sharper? And then we'll just go in and then we'll pitch it. So it's like in a pitch. Right. So it's 440 or whatever, a right. whatever. You can play on top of it. With yeah, a, you can play on top yeah. of it, and it's not going to be a nightmare right. afterwards. And what about mics and stuff? Like, I understand you say you have stuff set up. Are you changing your setup over time? Is it basically the same stuff all always? I have a couple of mics that I love using, yeah. and I don't care. Yeah. I have, what I realize is that I have kind of all the big, you know, C12, Elam, yeah. 47, 49, but I have all that stuff, and I don't care. Yeah. Like even little Shep's microphones, like if it's going to pick up something, it's yeah. going to be, it's going to sound fine. And I, I push around audio so much that I don't really care. Like I destroy, yeah. like I'll just roll off all the high end on yeah. a lot of things. So yeah. it doesn't matter. Like to me, it's just like, it doesn't matter. But you're still also getting called not for your label. You're still doing work for other oh, people. Yeah, do you, for sure. Do you change the mentality a little bit for that? Um, Only if they care about it. Hey, can we use a 47? Right. Okay. I got to turn my 47 on and my VF14 might blow, which is a $6,000 tube. So you're careful. <laughs> so I'm like reticent to use a 47 that that's I bought like a part to have a 47. That, you know, it's stupid. It's like having a car in New York. We got a car in New York. I never want to drive it because I don't want to give up my parking spot. It's like it, you don't want to turn your mic it, on because you might mess it up by it, turning it on. Exactly. I mean, I buy a lot of this stuff for you know, investment reasons and tax reasons. Gear is a crazy oh, yeah. habit. Oh yeah. I don't have kids, so it's yeah. easy for me. It's easy for me to like, you know, yeah. go there. And I've been doing this a really long time and, and what I've realized is if you buy the right stuff at the right price, it doesn't hurt in the long run. Well it seems like even though you don't care about whether or not you turn your forty seven on, like everybody who walks into this room can feel that they're in the presence of like some of the most classic pieces of gear i i care more about instruments yeah you know what i mean like yeah. microphones yeah whatever yeah. mic pre's yeah whatever yeah. compressors yeah whatever but so you have a lot of amps a lot of guitars a lot of keyboards a lot of a lot kits. of keyboards a lot of kits like yeah that stuff to me matters yeah. and it's and i don't even think that like you know we have the yamaha out yeah. and i have a, ma- a memory yeah. moog yeah and ema you yeah. know like i have all this fancy stuff but yeah. like the little stuff is as just as good yeah as just as good as anything yep. like i don't really care what it is it's yep. just we should be able to make sound out of whatever it's a tool it, for it, expression yeah and if it's a crappy thing great yep. let's make it not crappy how are you deciding who to work with on your label people who are recommended people who i mean so some people are coming to you others you're reaching out to yourself mostly i'm reaching out yeah 
Mostly I'm reaching out and I'm reaching out to a lot of people who are just who come in and are like kind of player people yeah. who aren't like, I'm going to make a solo record. And well, I read that that maybe one of the taglines was like, I'm interested in making records with people who don't haven't made solo records, but they're working a lot or they have a lot. Of yeah, they're side people. Yeah. And they don't think about like, I'm going to make my own record. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, the, the, I think the thing that gets a lot of people is like, you don't have to bring anything in. Just like, show up. Yeah, like you don't have to write anything. Like it's like, oh, I got to make a record. Oh, I got to write a record, right? Like that's in, that's intimidating. Sure, of course. Like, and then you're like, oh, I got to make it amazing. Fuck that. Do you see it as? I mean, this is a strange question, but do you see what you're doing as an act of generosity towards these artists? I think that there is an element of that. Yeah, I mean, not to be. No, you didn't say it. I asked the question, but it's like you, you're you're basically saying like, I want to open up your mind. I want to give you three weeks of my life for you to express yourself yeah i mean the deal is you know what the deal is and i mean i can tell you what the deal is it's very simple and sure what's the deal you know the deal is it's a 60 40 i get 60 yeah. they get 40 but they're not paying studio time right they don't pay studio time we split record costs yeah because i it i want it to be like audiophile yeah so we split the record costs and i know a guy who works over at um blue note yeah. who does all the tempoed yep. series yep. and he'd come in here and i said hey do you have any yeah. like recommendations i'm doing a, a label yeah and he said use my guy for mastering kevin gray right who's amazing and he does all of the tone poet series stuff right and use rti or qrc for record product like right. for manufacturing printing. Yeah, yeah manufacturing and the records sound incredible yeah so that's what I did. So we're definitely going for the audio Audiophile. file. Uh, absolutely. It's like, hey, man, you want to hear like, I mean, if you want to just hear Blue Note records for the rest of your life, then you yeah. wouldn't be interested in my label. But if you want to hear Buchlas and 2600s and Moog modulars sound amazing with amazing musicians, like they're pretty interesting to listen to, yeah. you know, I think. What do you think it is? I think that there's something... And Brad talks about it in some of the literature that he wrote about the record or the commentaries that he wrote about the relationship with futurism and those instruments like those. So, so many of the sounds of the 70s pointed to a future and now we're kind of in the future and they point to a past in a funny way. They kind of have they're evocative yeah. of like they sound futuristic, but they also kind of feel like 20th century sounds to me. I've read reviews where. People are like, yeah, they sound retro, but they sound futuristic yeah. at the same time. Yeah, which I want. I want to push. I don't. I'm not a traditionalist. Yeah. like I don't. I could care less. Yeah. Like there are enough people who do that stuff. I want it to push. I want to go forward. Yeah, I would just want to make music, not futuristic music. I just want to make music that I haven't heard before or yeah. that I want to listen to. You know, just things that have different textures. Yeah. I like acoustic stuff with super like dig stuff. Yeah. The deal, fine, sixty forty, but you have to sell something. Okay, so okay, so it's it's sixty forty split. We split the vinyl cost, the manufacturing vinyl cost, and we split the PR cost. Yeah. and the PR cost is two months. Yeah, so they pay a month, I pay a month. So I mean, I float everything in the beginning, right? And then once we get the vinyl, which takes a year, then I send a bill out, and by that time, either people will have sold records because the record has have probably has been out for probably i don't know eight months before yeah. we get the vinyl because vinyl takes a year to get yeah. and so some people owe us very little money some people owe us more money because they didn't sell a lot of records and then we have all the records so usually it takes about maybe 300 records to break even oh and then we have 200 records and then that's so at the end people could we could each make I don't know, three, four thousand dollars. So if the you model, sell all the, the records. The model is based on selling five hundred records and yeah. making a few grand. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I never recoup any of the money that yeah. I spend in here. Yeah. And the way I look at it is that it's probably about twenty thousand dollars worth of my time. Yeah, like fifteen days, and then I got to mix the record. Yeah. So I don't know. I charge. I'm not cheap here, like in my studio yeah. when I rent it out. Yeah. So that's about kind of what I think it's worth. So I get 10% for $20,000. If they want to pay me $10,000 and make it 50-50, yeah. I'm game. Have you offered that to anybody? Yeah. Has anyone gone for it? No. <laughs> but we're making art records. Yeah. Again, it goes back to my initial question of starting a label. Like if, you know, it's not to make money. It's not to make money. It's an art project. Yeah. Oh no, I'm in the hole. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, I'm not making any money. Right. So but, you have two big addictions. You have the addiction of gear, and then the now you have this new addiction of making art. Yes, a hundred percent. And it's beautiful, and I love it, and it's it's my most favorite time. Yeah. In my studio is making these records because it's so fun. Usually it's so fun. Yeah. There are times when it can get hard, but I mean, even in what with, sense of disagreements or yeah, with people. I mean, even with Brad. Yeah. Like there were times where you know because. He told me at one point, like, I hear music in my head. I know what it's yeah. supposed to sound. I'm like, you should make those records on your own. Yeah. But your record doesn't sound, the record that you made with me, you wouldn't have made that on your own. Well, there's that. that's an interesting argument. No right? way. Yeah. Not even close. Yeah. You already have records on your own. Yeah. Like, this record sounds completely, completely different. Yes. So, I don't know, what's that worth? Like, yeah. And so you have, there has to be some trust in me, yeah. in my aesthetic, right? that we'll get to a point where we'll make interesting music. Yeah. If they hear my records and they think my records are shit... Then they shouldn't work with they you. They shouldn't work with me. Do you have a plan for the future beyond th- these records right now? Not really. I'm happy I'm happy making records just because I like making records and I like making these records because I want my label to eventually... You know, ECM's kind of a template, mm-hmm. right? They have a sound. Yes. It's If you don't like it, then you're not going to buy their records, but... Would you would you consider moving into? I mean, you said some have vocals, some don't. But would you consider like opening, expanding the concept a little bit to more of a, I don't know, like to, song, yeah, thing? song things. Well, the problem with the song thing is that it t- it gets it out of the ethos of yeah. how I make my records, yeah. which is like don't think about it because once lyrics come in, once lyrics become involved, yeah. everything stops. Yeah. Like I've been in, in here yeah. in writing sessions. Yeah, it's like music goes, goes, goes. Melody, blah yeah. blah blah. And what are oh, we saying? lyrics. Yeah. Oh, and then everything stops. And you're trying to prevent. You're trying to keep it. I moving. just don't. Yeah. I and I'm not a lyricist, so yeah. I'm. I just like my brain. My eyes get. You know, they glaze over when yeah. it goes into lyrics. And I'm not. I, lyrics are so important. Yeah. And that's the other thing. It's like I don't want to just shit loud yeah. like crappy lyrics like to me it's like what's the point of that let's not do it yeah and you know you read books and it's like wow those guys know really know how to write yeah and then but, you hear songs and you're like that's or true. sometimes like wow they're really amazing writers yeah. but you know usually you have to sit and think about it and like so to me that's the thing that i would like to try to do is actually like try to get somebody who is a songwriter and make a record that's not like let's bring in a band yeah like I'd like to get them to make a record of with their songs, yeah. but like in the same manner that I'm doing these yeah. records. So yeah. it's like songs, but the background is not a bass player, a drummer, yeah. a guitar player, yeah. a keyboard Using player. Using this this palette. Yeah, songs, like yeah. let's do the drums and then let's go down an octave yeah. and then see how it fits yeah. underneath your thing. Right. Like so it's sonically like whoa which is happening you know like the perfume genius stuff is very adventurous yes Do you have people coming to you? Like, are you being approached? Are you having to turn people not, down? Not, not yet. really. Wait until this comes out, and then you'll see what happens. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, listen, I've been doing this stuff a long time, and yeah. like, nothing's ever like, I've never done one thing where it's like, all of a sudden, my phone, you know, it just doesn't happen for me. If you have commercial work, if you have paying, yeah, clients, I, you, you I prioritize that. that. I take that. It depends on how much I need. I, you know, it depends on how on how much I'm working. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I definitely prioritize that just because I need to subsidize my label. Yeah, your habit. You need to yeah. pay for your habit. I got to pay for my habit. And it's not coming from my parents. Right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I don't have that fountain of, yep. you know, which a lot of people do, I know. especially in New York and LA. I mean, it really has become clear to me when I see my peers who are really doing well that they probably didn't make that money like when i see in new york people who are living really well it's like oh you maybe didn't make that money yeah or you're living in la or new york and you're pursuing your passion without having to work or something right you know and you're which like, is also great i mean everybody... yeah no i mean i'm not yeah 
it's no, I not mean, a I, judgment call. It's more like I just don't have that yeah. fountain of money, you know, funnel of money coming in. So I got to like, you know, do gigs. You got to take the gigs. Of yeah, course. I got to take the gigs. And, yeah. and 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 gratefully, because of like the people that I'm kind of yeah. associated with, yeah. most of the people who I get are at least super talented. Yeah, I may not like the music, yeah. but it's at least good people. I've always wondered that with engineers, like, you know, you fortunately you always have something that you can focus on and listen to. The sounds can be sounds. Yeah. If if I don't like the music, yeah. I I just go for sound. Yeah. I'm like, I'm gonna make these people yeah. happy because I'm gonna make their sounds right. really good. Why is it called Lucy's Meat Market? Because Oh, it was a meat market. Oh yeah, in there. That was the Lucy's meat market. This so was two bedroom apartment. The live room yeah, that's the library. Was filled with hanging carcasses, probably. At one point, yeah, when I bought it, it was it was pretty uh, shut down. But there were like display cases. There's a giant what do you call it? Refrigerator in the back. Colorfield Records. That's what it's yeah, called. Right? Why col- why Colorfield? To come up with any name is really hard. Yeah. And I was racking my brain, racking my brain, yeah. and somehow I remembered that there was like an art movement in the '40s. You know, Mark Rothko, um, Helen Frankenthaler, like they were all part of this movement called Colorfield. Right. I was like, that sounds good. And no one, and when I brought it up with people, everybody was like, yeah, that's good. Yeah. It's evocative. So, and I have one other question, which is like, I'm kind of jumping around, but you know, I think probably the first time I saw the studio on, you know, a video of it, the thing I noticed was the drum. Oh, the hut that you made. Oh, yeah. You know, how did you come to that? You've got this dropped ceiling, high ceilings, and then you've got this like corner for the drums. I think it's United. Yeah, they have a thing called the drumbrella. Uh huh. Do you know what that is? No. It's literally like an umbrella yeah. that comes down yeah. that can deaden the sound. Deaden the sound. Yeah. And so, I thought, how am I going to do that? Yeah. Because if I want a dead sound, yeah. it's just hard when the ceilings are high. Yeah. So I had somebody build it, and it goes up and it goes down. Oh, it does? Oh, yeah. Oh, so you can decide how high. I never. It's never been up. <laughs> it can go up, but you. It can go up, and I've never put it up. I've never. I, yeah. No one has ever asked me to put it up because yeah. I have room mics. Yeah. There's one Coles over there yeah. on the wall, and there's another Coles here. That room sounds amazing. Yeah. It's just an amazing, amazing sounding yeah. room. So if people want room sounds, they can have it. But right. if they want like super dead sounds, so it's a very versatile, like drum. I give them a lot of mics. So Cole's room mics always on or always, always up. Yeah, and there's a room mic all the way in the back. Yeah, there's an AEA mic all the way in the back. Yeah, and then there's an AEA stereo mic that's in the front of the kit, which is kind of like a near room mic. Yeah. So I give people a lot of options. And then what's your overhead? It's a C24 right yeah. now. I love that on overheads. It's incredible. Yeah. It's not rock, like yeah. it's not a rock sound. Yeah. Like it's very clear, smooth. Yeah, it's like for jazz and yeah. stuff like that. Like it's, it's, I've done a couple rock things where I was like, oh man, I should have put a pair of sixty sevens up or whatever eighty sevens yeah. or something like that. But it's just super easy. It's just and I do MS. Like oh really? I, yeah, I mean I do MS. Over with, MS overheads. Yeah, and I was with, just thinking about that. The and other day. my and like my piano, like yeah. I have that mic. It's not a. Um, a C24, yeah. but it's a it's a MS mic. Yeah. It's a, a stereo mic. Yeah. And the thing about it is that like I've had, you know, like SF12. Yeah. You know, like where it's like that. Yeah. You know, right? And if you put it, yeah. yeah, right. So you put it in front of a piano like yeah. that. But where do people play? Usually people play right here. Mm-hmm. So you're getting you're missing like, you're missing, you're missing the, the mi- sides. Yeah. Yeah, you're missing the middle. Like you're like you're getting the spread, but you're like right. missing the middle. And when I so I thought, oh, I'm going to try MS on it. It was night and day. I, you know, I only do it for room. I've never done it on something close. you get... From right over the kit, for example. Right over the snare drum yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And then you get the, the sides. sides. And, and yeah. later, yeah. you can change how wide you want I know. the sides. Yeah. No, I know that. And I, I, ha- mean... and I decode. Like, I have, like, that's one decoder. Yeah. And then these two... Yeah. This is for one C24, and yeah. I have another C24 that I'm going to put in my other room for that one, because I, I realize that, like, for me, yeah. MS is, like, 
kind of cooler on a lot of things. It probably also translates to mono very totally. well in a way that you wouldn't Pull think. the signs yeah. down and you're in mono. Yeah. It's a thing to think about. Like with people, a lot of times with yeah. pianos or they're like this. Yes, space pair. Yeah, space yeah. pair. You're like, yeah, but most people play here. Close in the middle, yeah. And the, the kit middle. also is kind of in the middle. Yeah. I was doing the Glenn Johns thing for a while too, which is another, I mean, it's just interesting the solutions that people have found over the years. The thing about Glenn Johns is that you can do it, but yeah. if people, you're doing it, for a project that you're not mixing or you're not producing, yeah. you're limiting what they can do. Yeah. So I've never had any complaints about like me not giving people good material to mix. Yeah. And I don't give them too much. Yeah. Like I've heard and I've gotten, you know, like, you know, you get like 20 mics and you're just like, oh my God, I'm just going to mute half the mics. Yeah. So I might, I give them very, you know, usable like, sounds. Yeah. Exactly, like two kicks, two yeah. two top snares, two bottom, top snares, two top snares. One's compressed, one's not. Same mic? No. Uh, uh, let's do it. What are the? Can, can we talk about it? Or you uh, want, well, there's a KM84 that's yeah. not compressed, mm -hmm. and then some. I think it's a. I don't even know. A weird ATM twenty three or something like that. And yeah, and that one is. It, you could put any mic. Yeah. It's just to get different frequency range, and then that one is compressed. Yeah. I don't use a lot of compression on my on really anything i don't i don't like to compress that much and so going uh, in. do you have a, a snare under snare bottom? and then a snare bottom yeah. rack floor yeah and then my close room mic the aea yeah. stereo yeah. which is like that yeah. and then the two coals and then one super far mic which probably no one ever uses yeah actually somebody told me that they they used it as their mic because it actually sounds amazing yeah but i just find that most people don't want room sounds anymore yeah. so they usually are like you know they Using close yeah they just have it close and that's just generally it and that's a great sounding room yeah it just but i give everybody everything so it's not too much but it's what they need if they want and they yeah. and usually people are pretty happy so but i'm not and i don't compress overheads i don't i barely compress the room mics just a little bit because you know you've gotten i've gotten stuff mixed and it's like everybody like cranks the yeah. you know like on yeah. the room mic and i'm like i can't use it yeah like and like later on it's easy to do that yeah but don't do it going in yeah that's interesting because there's that fine line between making the choice in the moment which is you know we're, we're i think that's been hammered at me over and over again like make your decision and at the same time leave options i agree to a certain extent because i mix yeah like if you mix i think you have a different view of yeah. that you know like people put their reverb and whatever yeah. on their guitars and it's like yeah but if i want it closer i can't have a closer yeah. period like you know some people record di on guitar and the amp because yeah. if they want to reamp later yeah they can reamp it later so yeah. you know because you don't always make the right choice in the beginning right. and compression is very dangerous yeah and it can make stuff small yeah it can make it punchy yeah. and it can make it really small yeah and i've done it both ways <laughs> i've made stuff so small yeah. and been like and you know you you think about like the older guys who like have done it a really long time yeah. al schmidt no compression no, no compression yeah and i go oh right yeah because you know what like when with my drum sounds like yeah. oh man you get really great drum sounds no compression yeah you don't need to no no i like, know you can you can easily do it later but also the thing about Schmidt and those those records, and I hear it here too, is like there's a lot of headroom. There's a lot of space. Headroom is God. Yeah. Headroom is, if you don't have headroom, it's just like it's not going to give you what you want. It yeah. won't be big. Yeah. And It'll, it, it could be cool. Yeah. I'm not saying it can't be cool. Like yeah. there's a lot of indie records that I hear sometimes, you know. I mean, these kids came into my place one time. It's there's a band called the Black Lips. Uh -huh. Do you know the no. Black Lips? No. And they played. They're like, dude, check this out. Yeah. And it sounded like they were in a rehearsal room and they had a little cassette deck, mono, and yeah. they hit record. Yeah. And I'm like, it does sound amazing. Yeah. Like it was amazing. It sounding. has a sound. It's a sound. Yeah. But if you're giving, if you're recording for other people to mix, you're not doing them a disservice. Yes. Putting your own thing on it that is really interesting because i think 
what you're describing, but I think you're also describing it within the context of, you know, the sounds that you're talking about are also very dialed. Because I think what happens with us, especially those of us who are constantly living inside the box all the time, so you don't make any decisions because you want to be able to change everything. But you can change them afterwards. Yeah. You can change them. You can blow up any of the yeah. kits that I give you. Yeah. That's easy. Yeah. Blowing up kits is easy. Yeah. Going back is not. Like, I've gotten, you know, like, hey, can you mix my shit? Like, yeah, you sure. Can't do and then you get, and it's just like, it's this. Yeah. And you're it's like, tall. how do you make it big? Like, yeah. It's hard to make it big. Like, you want it to sound like this, and you're giving me this. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I'm going to replace everything. It's funny, though. I have a friend, an engineer friend in New York, who sometimes tells me that he gets frustrated when he gets hired to record things. And other people mix it because he's like, I record things so beautifully, especially in jazz context, it's recorded so beautifully that yeah, whoever's you barely mixing, have to, the yeah, mixer's you don't have to do just, anything. Yeah, the mixer's just like basically pushing faders up and using my beautiful recording. But that's the way it goes. Yeah. I mean, that's life. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, life's not fair. And, right. and I agree, but yeah. you'll keep on getting work. Yeah. If you keep on doing that stuff, you'll keep on getting work. And one day somebody's going to be like, hey, mix my record. Of course. You know, and you just got to wait yeah. in line. Because you don't have a name yeah. that somebody else has. And yeah. it's happened to everybody. Yeah. It's happened to everybody. You know, life's not fair. The music business is really not fair. And people who have, you know, like resumes, sometimes I hear their records and I'm like, I don't get it. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny when you were describing even like the way you quantize. Like, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's... I do that too. Like I like things to be tight, but I also like them to feel live. And I find that if I play stuff live and then I tighten up the timing, that is the sound that I like. It's amazing. But there are plenty of people who don't like the sound of or or will say, I don't like the quantized sound. I want it to be looser. I want to feel the time moving around. Like that's that's a preference thing, you know? I think it depends on who's playing the drums. Yeah. Like when I'm get yeah. people in and I'm yeah. quantizing, it's usually yeah. people who don't play drums. Yeah. So you need <laughs> you know to tighten I mean? them up. Yeah. But even with Mark Juliana, there yeah. were times when I quantized him because yeah. I wanted a rigid feel. Sure. Like I wanted it to feel yeah. like electronic music. Right. So and that's he's a leaning, choice. He's leaning in that already. He's like and he's suggesting like, that already. Do yeah. whatever you want. He's yeah. totally down. Yeah. He doesn't care. Yeah. He's like, yeah, sure. No problem. I mean, do I need to do it? Like, it feels different. Yes. So, it does feel different. Yeah, it feels different. But like, I mean, there's another person who's been on many many records yeah. I, i'm not going to yeah. say his name right now yeah you know i'm like yeah i quantize he's like i quantize all the time too I'm like <laughs> right and he's a drummer who gets hired a lot no i tell that you know i mean to go back <laughs> to where we started our mutual friend pete nichelle who hires me to play on his film score stuff playing drums and i'm always like you don't want to see what happened before you got these who drums cares? you don't need to see what happened the way i you know yeah. what i say people hit play and and either they like it or they don't. Yeah. They don't care how you got there. Yeah. They don't care. They don't care what you did. Either yeah. it's cool or it's not cool. Yeah. Either it makes them feel something or it doesn't. Period. However it got there. But however all, it got all there. of that is to say, you know, having strong opinions it matters. But our, everybody's opinions are different. Like you have, yeah. you know, your sound is your sound. Yeah. And people are coming to you for that right now. Hundred percent. Pete Min. Hope it was uh, fun. It was fun. It was insightful. It was uh, eventful. And I was already excited about what you're doing, but I'm actually more excited now hearing you talk about some of the philosophy behind it. So thanks, Thanks. man. Congratulations. Thank you. There he was, my friends, Pete Min. I'll be back again soon in your headspace with my conversation featuring Brad Allen Williams, where we talk about the record he made with Pete for Colorfield and a whole lot more. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.